our message, I am going to read yet another passage. Um, Good Friday, like Easter morning, is one of those days when there are particular texts we expect to hear and want to hear, and are, we crave them, uh, and that is good. Uh, but I think it is also important to be reminded that all of Scripture, all that comes before the cross points forward to the cross, and all that comes after the cross points back to the cross. This is not just something that uh, encompasses a small amount of Scripture uh, here about three-quarters of the way through, and it comes up like a blip. This is the absolute high point of not only Scripture, but all of human history and all of salvation history. I want to read, though, uh, this evening from my main text from 2 Samuel 13. Uh, And there we read this. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, I have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in this passage, we see what, at least at that moment, must have been the low point in David's life. And David's life is up and down all over the place. He's on the run. He's in charge of a band of mighty men. He's fighting the king, he's defeating the king, he's sorry that the king is dead and he's weeping. But in this moment, he must have thought, I can't get any lower than this because of what he thought was happening. What he thought was going on was that all of his sons, save one, Absalom, were dead at the hand of that one, Absalom. And so he, as any father would in that day, did the one thing that you did when grief and sorrow overwhelmed you, which was to take his garment and tear it. And of course, he finds out later that only one of them is dead. That is Amnon. In just a few verses, between you and me, Amnon had it coming, but it still grieves the heart of David for his son to have died. In fact, we see this whole thing as it unfolds over the next few chapters. If you haven't read it, read the Old Testament. It's not only vital for us as Christians, but incredibly exciting. Uh, There's a coup. There's uh, Absalom actually takes over Uh, Jerusalem pushes David out and tries to make himself the one king, and then there is a reversal. Absalom is killed, and even though he had become the, the greatest enemy of his father David, we read those horrible, heartbreaking words when he hears of his son's death at the hands of Joab. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And we see similar things. For example, uh, when Jonathan dies and David hears of it, he tears his garments. 
Uh, we think about when uh, Jacob thinks once again that his son Joseph has died. He hasn't, but uh, his brothers have sold him into slavery. They took his coat of many colors. They tore it. They put blood on it to make it look like a wild animal had attacked him. They bring it to Jacob. And when he sees this shredded, torn, bloody garment, he takes his own garment and rends it, rips it. And, and this is not just something that we find happening in scriptures uh, to express grief and mourning, but also repentance uh, and even shock. For example, if someone says uh, something blasphemous, in either of those cases, the response is this upwelling of sorrow and kind of horror. And what happens is you rip your garment if you live in the Bible. But why? That's the question. And I think on the face of it, the easy answer is that was their custom. And sometimes customs, all customs, are to some degree a little bit arbitrary. We, we well, it's not happening as much anymore, but in our, in our world, uh, when you go to a funeral, people will wear black. Uh, when you go to Easter service, people will wear pink, right? And, and, but you wouldn't want to wear something uh, flashy and, and celebratory to a funeral unless you really didn't like the person and wanted to make that statement. Uh, more and more, I think people don't even bother to put on something decent when they go to funerals, but that is uh, beside the point. There still is that value, I think, in much of society. Uh, in years past, there were different uh, customs that if you were mourning someone's death, uh, people would wear a black armband, and they would wear it for a long time. A reminder, I'm actually in mourning because someone important to me has died. Or a woman might wear a black veil for months or even a year after the death of her husband. And in the biblical setting, they would immediately rip their garments. Again, though, why? There's got to be a kernel of something at the heart of it. And it seems that it goes back to the origins of these people, that they are agrarian, they are shepherds, they are not uh, rich people to start out with, although very quickly they begin to amass wealth. They do it in this very simple way. Uh, getting sheep, which then, of course, are sheared, and then you make yarn, uh, and then out of that, you weave fabric, and you think about how precious garments were in that world. There was nothing that was mass-produced. It's nothing like later we saw in the book of Acts, even, where Lydia is selling fabric in Thyatira that is, they're kind of churning it out, and they're making a, a major profit by selling it. No, if you had a garment, it had been handmade, it had been painstakingly made. It had been time intensive and it was precious to you. In fact, we talked uh, a little bit last Sunday when I was talking to the kids about how wild it was that they would take off their coats and throw them on the, the road for the donkey to walk on because the coat was, your, your cloak was the most precious thing you had. If you gave it to someone who lent you money as collateral, that night you could come back and say, I need it for the night. I'll give it back to you in the morning. Uh, and you would, you would wrap it around you. It was precious to you. And, of course, that was near at hand. It was precious to you. It was important. And since God had very much expressly forbidden uh, Israel to cut themselves like the heathen would do when they were full of sorrow, they would take this precious thing and tear it. And when they did that, they would show just the depth of the emotion inside. A moment ago, this thing was one of the most precious things that I had. Now, maybe you only have two or three good garments. And I would just say, in this moment, it means nothing in light of what has happened and what's happening now inside of me. And, and you express that 
through this tearing. And I have to imagine there was something a little weirdly cathartic about it as well, just to, to grab something and, and tear it in that moment. The idea was magnified if people chose after they had torn their regular clothes to put on sackcloth, which is you know, just garbage fabric that feels scratchy and itchy and doesn't look, you know, looks silly. <laughs> You're saying, I don't care what or adorns me right now. What matters right now is the grief that I am feeling. And, and of course, there's also the element that clothing covers the shame of a person. That's the origin of clothing in the Bibles. And when they would rip their clothing, they wouldn't do it in a way to expose themselves or something and, and reveal their shame. I'm not saying that. But when we think about that, that background and, and we think about how your, your garments are there kind of holding you and containing you, and now you're saying, this thing can't contain my sorrow. It just can't. Or my shame, or my horror at what has just happened. It is coming out now. And with it, the tearing of the garment. And this was an almost universal uh, custom or practice in the, in the ancient Near East. And in the East, there are still places where this is uh, something that you'll see happening. Someone tearing a garment out of just sorrow and grief. With one exception... In Israel, everyone would do this. And that one exception is laid out in Leviticus 21. We read, The high priest, the one among his brothers who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not tear his clothes. He's wearing holy vestments. He's standing in between God and man. And he can't do that that very human thing that would be very understandable in certain situations. And we see even when Aaron, the first high priest, loses two sons in one day, he will not tear his clothes, rend his garments. The, the high priest is for, forbidden from doing such a thing. And yet, let's look a little earlier uh, in the passage that we were hearing read this evening, the, the uh, passion of Jesus. When we read in chapter 26, under the heading of Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. I'll start in, in verse 59. Feel free just to, to listen. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Quoting the prophet Daniel, identifying himself as the, the ancient of days, the, the messianic figure. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard the blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? So we see in this moment, we know it's a kangaroo court. We know this whole thing was uh, not uh, seeking justice kind of situation, but a seeking political expediency and doing away with this person uh, kind of a, a thing. But how blatantly he goes against the law by tearing his garment. And, and I would say this is just another 
nail in the coffin of the notion that Caiaphas is truly God's high priest. Now, he did offer a prophecy. He uttered words that God had put in his mouth. It is better for one man to die that the whole nation might live. But he didn't even know he was doing it. And he was fast on his way out at that point. Now, having ripped, it's almost like in ripping his garment, he's tearing the last vestige of his true priesthood away from himself. And yet there is one whose garment on that day remained completely unripped, untorn, even though it should have been torn. You think about Jesus is taken out. He's, he's scourged. The normal process would be just, I mean, these guys aren't careful. They're not gentle. The point is to not be gentle. They would tear your garment open and they would lay into your back with, and I mean, we don't even want to think about what a scourge was uh, with bits of sharp bone and, and metal embedded in it to tear the flesh. And then, of course, when it was time to actually crucify, they would just rip all your clothes off so you were naked, so you're humiliated and exposed, and then shame you by hanging you up for everyone to see. Well, we somehow, in God's providence, find Jesus' garment untorn, unstained, so that it still remains intact. Because now Jesus, we were talking about this last Sunday as well, owned just about nothing in his life. He didn't have his own donkey. He had nowhere to lay his head. He, didn't, he wasn't a homeowner. Uh, and yet he somehow owned a very nice garment. Maybe it was a gift. Maybe it was something that he saved up and bought and just took very good care of, uh, being a good steward, whatever the case. It was woven. It was one woven garment rather than kind of pieced together. And when the soldiers looked at it, they were filled with avarice and they said, hold on, don't rip that. Don't tear that. We're not going to divide it up between us by saying there's four of us. Let's cut it into four pieces. They got the dice out and they began to gamble. And of course, when I read Psalm 22, the beginning of the service, you heard that was a prophecy from way, way back uh, that they would divide his clothing by casting lots. And so Jesus shows himself to be the true high priest, even in the midst of all this, because God is in control, his garment is not rent. Just like, even though it was the common practice, like they did with the other two, the, the robbers on either side of him, to break the legs of the condemned so that they would fall and die quickly uh, before the Sabbath would begin. That was kind of a, a mercy that they would do for people uh, if it had dragged on a little too long. Well, they went to Jesus and he was already dead. So no bone was broken. And in that, we see that he's the priest fulfilling that. And we see that he's also the Passover lamb in which no bone was to be broken. And that actually is kind of the point of much of the book of Hebrews, which we're going to look at for a moment in a moment, that Jesus, for us, is both the high priest going into God's presence on our behalf and the sacrifice whose blood is brought into God's presence to make expiation for us, to, to justify us. He brings his own blood into the presence of God and it is placed on the altar. And I think that this, this whole thing is, is very much wrapped up in verse 51. And that's really what I want to focus on for the rest of our time here. And that is that we read in verse 51 that when Jesus had cried out and breathed his last, a whole bunch of very... Scary things, strange things happen all at once. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split. I like the King James better, the rocks did rent. The tombs also were opened and people who'd been dead for years were walking around. And, and it all begins with the tearing 
of that temple curtain from top to bottom, rending it in half. Now, I would suggest that this curtain is almost God the Father's garment in this moment. That, that it is ripped in half and it serves the same purpose to some degree as when Jacob tears his garment or David tears his garment when he hears that his son has died or Jacob thinks that Joseph has died and there is a, a, a bloody garment in front of him and he says, I, I'm filled with such sorrow, I have nothing else that I can do with it but to, to begin to weep and tear my garments put on sackcloth and put ashes on my head. It was a priceless thing. Just like someone's garment might be a priceless thing to them, that curtain, it wasn't, you couldn't just run to you know, Bed Bath & Beyond and get yourself a curtain for the temple. This, this was elaborate. It was 30 feet wide and 60 feet tall to begin with. And it was woven of 72 plates of fabric, each of 24 threads, and very carefully, skillfully, perfectly put together into one large curtain. And when the father is so filled with sorrow at the moment of the son's death, he tears it in half, top to bottom. It's not anything that man did. It's something that God did. And of course, it's there, in a sense, to hide shame. Not the shame of God, of course, but our shame from him. You know, look at the, the history of clothing in the Bible. We alluded to it earlier, but think about where it begins. In the garden, Adam and Eve, naked, no shame, they're innocent, and then they sin. And they immediately say, we were ashamed because we were naked and we ran from you. And what do they try to do? Oh, let's make ourselves some clothes. We've never seen clothes, but I can try and kind of weave some fig leaves together and stuff. Uh, and... I, I almost wish, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to see it, I guess, but I almost wish I could see, you know, a diagram of what they came up with because it would be so inadequate. Uh, and it's a, a picture for us. It calls to mind our attempts to cover our shame, to cover our sinfulness, to, to do enough good deeds or reform ourselves enough to somehow be presentable to God and go behind that curtain by our own merit. Impossible, ridiculous. Uh, we, a gift to you, by the way, Mimi and I finally recorded another of our, our church's podcast, Mimi Reads the Bible, a Good Friday edition, in which we were talking about, we've been going through Jonah, in which we were talking about Jonah in the stomach of the great fish, and, and this connection of being isolated and quarantined there, connecting to what we're all going through, and also a very clear biblical connection to Jesus in the belly of the, the earth, the tomb, where he said, I'll be in the heart of the earth for three days, just as Jonah. But one thing we didn't mention was that there is that moment there where he says, you've got to throw me over because God is angry and God's wrath, until it's appeased, this storm is going to just keep on battering us. And those sailors don't immediately throw him over. It says that they rowed hard. They took their oars and they started to row and they tried and tried and tried. They said, there's got to be some other way to do this. But there wasn't. Only by the death of the one, the symbolic death going down into the earth and then into the, the belly of and then the symbolic resurrection that Jesus said he would fulfill, only by that could they be saved. And only by Jesus' death could we be saved. And so what happens when they make the, the fig leaf garments? God says, oh my goodness, all right. Here, I'll clothe you. And he makes for them skins into clothing and, and something has had to die now in order to cover their shame. And there it remains, the shame covered up 
And when there's a temple and a tabernacle before it, yes, a priest, one priest, the high priest, the guy who can't rip his garments, he can go into that holy place. But then there's always that curtain hanging and he can't go behind there, the holy of holies, only once a year and only when he has the blood. And even then, they were afraid. They, they, they knew at any, any moment that they did it wrong, going into God's presence like that, if they did not go in the way that he had prescribed, they could fall over dead. And, and, and it's a very frightful thing. This, this garment hanging there to protect the sanctity of that holy place from the wickedness of his people. It's kind of the ultimate manifestation of our shame and God's holiness. And when you think about the fact that only once a year and with trembling, someone could walk in and then you start reading from Hebrews 9, it becomes immediately clear what this has to do with Good Friday. Let me read just a few verses from Hebrews 9. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Therefore, brothers, since we have, and this is skipping to chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Wow, what a, what a beautiful picture the apostle paints for us here. Robert Fossett said this about the tearing of the, the uh, temple curtain. The moment the victim expired on the altar, that thick veil which for so many ages has been the dread symbol of separation between God and guilty men was, without a hand touching it, mysteriously rent in twain from top to bottom. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was now main, made manifest. The curtain that blocked the entrance to God's holy, perfect presence, his Shekinah glory, was removed. And the way into God's presence was now open to all through a new and living way. When Jesus had said, I'll destroy the temple in three days, and then I will build it again, and everyone thought, ooh, this is the thing we can get him with. He was talking, according to the evangelist and according to common sense, not about the physical temple, but about his body. And yet, they were right to think that he had plans for the temple to fade out into obscurity. Because when that curtain was torn down, with it he rendered the temple, the old priesthood, the sacrificial system, all of that stuff forever obsolete. And now the way is open for us to enter, not via an intermediary apart from Christ, 
Not via a system of unforgiving sacrifices and bleeding, suffering animals, but by the blood of the one spotless Lamb of God, who is not only our Passover Lamb, but our High Priest. By that perfect blood, we enter into His presence, and we can remain there forever.